lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half This podcast is brought to you by finish. Racing New Cavalry South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. The Spring Carnival action heads north to Newcastle on Saturday, November the 12th for The Hunter, the $1 million feature for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,300 metres, and it's hard to believe it's the fourth edition of The Hunter. The first two were won by mares. Savatiano won the inaugural running for Godolphin with James McDonald up, relegating the Chris Lee's trained tactical advantage into second place. In 2020, it was Sweet Deal, trained by John Thompson and written by Nash Rewilla. Again, Chris Lee's trained the runner-up special reward. Last year, Lost and Running dominated the race at short odds for John O'Shea and Hugh Bowman, and you guessed it, the runner-up Wonder Bar was trained by Chris Lees. Supporting the hunter will be the Beaufort, the Group 3 Spring Stakes and the Max Lees Classic for the two-year-olds, while the regular highway and midway races have also been programmed. November 12th at the beautiful Broadmeadow track at Newcastle for the running of the hunter. Put yourself in Jamie Walter's place in the closing stages of the Everest on October the 15th, for a couple of heart-stopping seconds, the founder and CEO of Proven Thoroughbreds allowed himself to believe that Private Eye was about to join Red Zell as a syndicated winner of the world's richest race on turf. Jamie's fantasy disappeared in a heartbeat when the chestnut horse on the outside jumped out of the ground to snatch the prize from Private Eye's large group of owners. Still second prize money of $2.3 was a mind-boggling return for the cult who cost him just $62,500 at the 2019 Adelaide Magic Million sale. Two weeks later, Private Eye relished the return to a good track to score a spectacular win in the Nature Strip Stakes at Rose Hill. His stunning recent form comes on the 20th anniversary of the creation of Proven Thoroughbreds, so named because Jamie initially dealt only with the purchase of tried horses. Nowadays, he buys somewhere between 30 and 40 yearlings every year for syndication to clients, old and new. Jamie Walter has tried his hand at many jobs throughout life and believes that every one of them has helped to prepare him for his current role. This bloke has crammed a hell of a lot into his 65 years and he has no intention of slowing down until proven thoroughbreds gets another crack at the Everest. Jamie, great to catch up. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, John. It's a privilege to be here, let me say. And I would also add fairly promptly that I'm very, very fortunate to be so passionate about what I do. And not everyone can say that about their chosen vocation or, or career. And uh, I consider myself very, very lucky. Let's go back to the Everest. Your heart must have been jumping out of your chest when Private Eye headed Nature Strip about 50 metres out. Well, it's interesting, John. It was never a race really on our radar. We, some months ago, Joe and I sort of discussed vaguely about him racing in it fresh because he's always raced well fresh, like most good horses. Mm. Uh, but thinking he'd go into it second up, one of the last horses actually chosen for the race by the slot holders, uh, it was a remarkable run. It's kind of um, that combined with the, with the Gill Guy performance first up and mm. the subsequent victory in the, in the nature strip that you referred to, mm. it strongly suggests he's come back a superior horse to what he was last preparation. Mm. Uh, he's a slow-maturing gelding who's been beautifully handled by Joe Pride and he's a top 
class, very, very versatile horse, by far and away the best horse we've had. Yes. Did you watch the Everest with owners or do you like to get away by yourself when you've got a runner in these big races? No, I watched it with owners and and uh, my son Tom, who's a partner in the business, and there was uh, great emotion from about the 200 uh, to within a few strides of the post. Oh, I can imagine. I thought, you know, he's gonna he's gonna win for about two two uh, strides, and then the the chestnut horse bloused him late. Mm. It's funny, you know. People often say this about horses that are that are caught in the shadows of the post by by a, a fast finishing competitor out wide. Mm. To, uh, uh, Private Eye races in blinkers, and interestingly, John he's never been headed when he's gone inside the furlong previously. Mm. And one part of me thinks, particularly as he's as his wins were so impressive either side of the Everest, I can't help thinking that maybe he didn't see uh, Giga Kit coming. Mm-hmm. He, he had the big hulking frame of nature strip in his sights and and set out after him and said, I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. did, but he got ambushed, arguably, <laughs> by, by, by the chestnut that just flashed <laughs> up so he didn't see him. He jumped out of the ground, didn't he, Giga Kick? Yeah, yeah, and look, uh, Private Eye's a horse who, who enjoys having the last shot at them too, John, and uh, the circumstances of the Everest were uh, he, he got to the front a little a, a fraction earlier than he normally would. That's right, yeah. And and uh, left him vulnerable. But look, I'm not complaining. It was an outstanding run, giga kick, who, dare I say, is undefeated, mm. might be might be a much better than a better horse than all of us thought he was prior to the Everest. Mm. Time will tell, <laughs> but it was a pretty impressive effort to to beat those older horses at just his mm. fifth start. Oh, absolutely! Like many horses in Sydney, Private Eye has been screaming out for a decent track, and he got one in the Nature Strip a fortnight after the Everest. I've never seen him go any better. Jamie, he was magnificent. Yeah, well, look, he's 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 showed a superior turn of foot that day, John, and and ran the quickest last six hundred of the day. I think mm. the quickest last hundred. And Britton Avdala actually said post race he, he was throttling down because he'd got to the front so quickly, mm. coming from sort of midfield position, one off the fence. It was. It was a breathtaking performance, really, and I, and I'm, I say that perhaps with a little bit of bias. Mm. But uh, in terms of his his career progress, that the Gilgai and the Everest are arguably uh, superior to anything he's produced previously. Not yeah. even even the Epsom. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't think there's any doubt about that. He, I couldn't believe. Um, my eyes when he burst to the front on Saturday. Coming to the 200, I'm thinking to myself, he'll be in the finish, but he'll get him very late. And in a twinkling, he's a length and a half in front. It was astonishing. Well, you know what a, a weapon, a turn of foot is, John. Mm. Really outstanding horses that can just unleash those Says Hugh Bowman once said an interesting thing about Winks. Mm. He said most horses, even the really good ones, can dash for about two hundred meters. Mm. He said Winks could sprint for four hundred. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Give you a, gives you an idea of what an extraordinary aerobic capacity that mare had. Yeah. And she why she uh, built up such an astonishing record. What a horse. Mm. It's so good to see a relatively cheap yearling performing at that level. He's already won an Epsom, he's won a Queensland Guineas, he ran second in a Stradbroke and arguably should have won that Stradbroke. It gives the smaller players inspiration. Indeed it does, John, and that's one of the most attractive things about racing. If it was as simple as the, as the most expensive horses made the best racehorses, 
then the game would be controlled by a handful of the of the wealthy. And you and I know it's not. Mm. Because champions can come from all manner of backgrounds. You look at horses like Vaux Rogue. Yeah. Northerly. Northerly's two front knees were so offset mm. they wouldn't even put him in the sail. That's right. Magic missions. Yeah. But but look, I, I I do find there's a there's an element therefore of sort of freak about about modestly bred horses who mm. graduate to the highest class. Mm. Now, in saying that, he's got a pretty good damn side, Private Eye. Mm. It's from Snitzel's family. Yeah. Third or fourth dam, and his mother by Shamadal, while she wasn't much chop, she can clearly throw one. Mm-hmm. And Almahar wasn't the worst sire. So, look. Uh, Not a complete <laughs> shock, is it? No, no, but but also just going back to what I said a moment ago about about high class horses can develop from anywhere. Look at the breeding of the horses in the Everest this year. Mm. There were two by Rubik, yeah, who's been demoted by Coolmore to Victoria. Mm. Two by Nakoni, who's been demoted to Victoria by Witten. Mm. An Almaha, a host. Vancouver. Goodness me, yeah. You know, the gun stallions weren't actually evident there, which is an interesting situation. I mean, I'm, I'm not being critical of the top-class stallions. They, the, the, they command massive service fees and huge yielding prices for, for good reasons. Statistically, mm-hmm. uh, they really stand up. But when it comes to really outstanding gifted horses – Pedigree uh, is sometimes not that important. They just happen. You know, no one yeah. buys a horse and thinks, oh, I knew it was going to be a group one when at the moment I saw it. Mm. Please. <laughs> yeah. you got no idea, John, oh, until yeah. you put a cattle on them and start working and then get to know them and, and, mm. and see how competitive they are. They're different animals, yeah. the really outstanding ones. Mm. Private Eye, as you've already mentioned, has been beautifully managed by Joe Pride, in whom you personally have great faith and confidence. And I know your late brother Guy always spoke very glowingly of young Joe, didn't he? You know what he said to me about Joe, John? Mm -hmm. In all the years I've been training here at Warwick Farm, there's one young bloke that constantly asks me questions. Yeah. Joe Pride. Yeah. And I think that's a testimony to Joe's uh, intelligence, Joe's Joe's desire to learn, mm. Joe's drive and, and ambition, and very respectful of Joe in asking God, I think. Yeah. I mean, not not that you know guy was wanting to sprout his knowledge to everyone but he was very accommodating when anyone asked mm. and joe was that far yep he's always had a thirst for knowledge young joe pride now jamie your life has taken so many twists and turns that it's best to start from the beginning you were born in sydney you were reared in mudgee where you had a connection with horses from a very early age. Your mum had something to do with that, didn't she? Yeah, my mother was brought up on a farm in Corindai, and she definitely horsing influence. My father was uh, an accountant who'd come from Sydney and moved to Mudgee after the war. He'd been a POW in Germany for four years and was keen to get out of Sydney. Start a new life. As he said to me, most of his mates were gone after the war. So he met my mother at the Musselbrook picnic races. We got married three months later. But that's going right back into history. Yeah. My mother was throwing us all on horses when we were about two or three years old. Mm. And uh, we did the pony club thing and 
guy sort of went on with it more than me. When I got to about 12 or 13, I got more interested in cricket and football and mm. myself. But I always maintained a very keen interest in racing. You were fascinated with radio from teen years and you would have grown up, I imagine, with the sound of 2MG Mudgee in the household. 2MG Mudgee indeed, John. I, I, I remember hearing your dulcet tones on 2MG many a time, calling the races from uh, Sydney, be it Harold Park Trots or the um, major gallop meetings around the country. Mm. But now 2MG was uh, got me my start. Uh, I was very fortunate to to get a start in radio there and graduated to the sister station 2BS and then on to 2ST in Nowra, mm. 2W in Sydney. Before I realised I was a pretty limited radio announcer, John, I wasn't going to be a Doug Mulray, who was the star of of radio in those days, for, for, for music radio heads like I was. And uh, so I, I left to UW after about seven or eight years and went overseas for 12 months. Well, that was a, you must have been doing something right to get that offer from TUW in Sydney because it was a pretty vibrant station in that era. How did that offer come up? Well, I was in Nara working for about two and a half years and I had a lot of friends in Sydney so I was keen to get back to Sydney and I applied for various jobs around the, around the place and, and finally Ronnie Sparks from 2UW hired me after he moved over from 2SN to 2UW and mm. away we went. What did you do at 2UW? You were multitasking there for a while, weren't you? I started off on the graveyard shift, John, mm. midnight to dawns, and then I got to uh, drive time. And uh, afternoons, I did a variety of shifts there over the 18 months, two years. I was a bit longer than that, actually. I was about there about three years before I, I left. Mm. And thoroughly enjoyable. I, I really enjoyed my time in radio and and learned a lot about communication and reading commercials too, actually, because I continued to do voiceovers for a number of years thereafter. Mm. I'd, I'd learned about reading commercials from a guy called Matt Ponsonby at mm. 2BS. I remember Matt. He Matt was, was vision impaired. Yeah, he was completely blind in, two, in both eyes, but mm. he was a remarkable character, a big influence on my um, radio career. Terrific fella. And he, uh, he um, taught me a lot about reading commercials, and I subsequently did voiceovers for the next 30 years. Yes. Oh, you were pretty much in demand. You were on the A-list. Um, I don't know about that. I think closer to C, John. <laughs> I couldn't have made a living out of it. <clears throat> well, you I, did do it to some extent. Well, I, I, I got a bit of nice pocket money, shall we yeah. say. And it was a thoroughly enjoyable way to stay involved in radio yeah. because uh, I, after I returned from overseas, I did a little bit more radio before eventually yeah. getting into financial markets. Mm. A decade in the 90s, and it was nice keeping the hand in radio doing voiceovers. It was something a little, little bit more creative than following the movement of numbers and financial markets. You mentioned so, going overseas, Jamie. We'll just quickly brush through uh, your little adventure in two countries. In 1983, you felt the need to explore America and you headed straight to California where you sought and landed a short-term role with a trainer called Neil Drysdale. That's the bloke who trained legends like A.P. Indy and Fusiichi Pegasus. Where was he based? Well, in California, as in most racing centres in the US, 
they race at the one location for for weeks on end, for several months. Yes, in most cases, and they it's a travelling caravan. All the trainers and, and the horses in work move from location to location. And mm. when I joined Neil, uh, the racing season at that point, I think it was June or July or something. It was it was at Hollywood Park, which has mm. been sold. Yeah. And then we went down to Del Mar, which was down near uh, San Diego. And the third track at that stage in 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 LA was at Santa Anita, which was the HQ of of Californian racing and and is to the day. Next step was an interesting one. You went to New York and you worked in a grocery store. I can't imagine it. Well, it was interesting hearing all those New York accents, John. It was a, it was. Uh, I was young, and it was a bit of an adventure. Actually, the first job I got was as a as a chauffeur. Really, <laughs> or a fellow that had emphysema, and uh, and uh, that only for a short time because he uh, sadly got moved to hospital. But I was basically his. Um, his go-to man, and I just had to sit with him and chat with him and drive him around wherever he had to go. And that was mm. <laughs> that was a bit of a laugh for a short time. But no, the grocery store was was really interesting. New York's a fascinating place. It is. Gee, it's the ultimate in urban living, I think. And I I really enjoyed my few months there. Mm. When your fascination with America cooled, you headed to Great Britain. As a racing enthusiast, you gravitated to the home of the thoroughbred at Newmarket. What was your take on the magic of this amazing place? Well, it was breathtaking, John, to think that there was uh, a town of reasonable size, you know, five, ten thousand 10,000 people that was just dedicated to racing. <laughs> About an hour out of London, north of London, up in Suffolk. Yeah. And beautiful rolling heath that they uh, went for miles and magnificent place to train horses. And trainers there are, are blessed. They've got outstanding facilities. Like most tracks in the UK, they're all out of the cities. They're they're out in the country, but because it's a far more densely populated country than Australia, mm. you know, so many tracks are only an hour or two away, depending on the location. Mind you, they do travel a bit because they go far and wide to compete in the right race. Yes. Newmarket, the experience there was invaluable, John. I, I really gave me a great insight into English racing. And to this day, I, I actually returned there earlier this year for the mm. first time in 38 years. And it changed a bit. Newmarket got a bit bigger, a bit busier. But the fundamentals were still very much the same. Mm. You spent some time with a very respected trainer there, Mark Tompkins, invaluable experience. Yeah, Mark was a Scotsman, interesting fellow. He had a really good foreman too, John, I can't remember his name. He was very experienced and, and taught me a lot. But I was there six months, which is uh, probably not long enough for someone wanting to embark on a training career, but for me, it was all just part of the overseas adventure and my, you know, my passion for racing. Uh, I thought working in a stable was the best way to fulfil that. Mm. But having a, an older brother was a trainer. As a trainer, I thought, well, one trainer per family is enough. Mm. I'll find some other vocation in the game when I return to Australia, which I ultimately did. Yep. But. Yep. And got another job in radio with a station called Triple M. Uh, you got some weekend work there, a couple of midnight to dawn shifts. Uh, you worked yeah. a little bit for Brother Guy. Uh, you yeah. helped him behind the scenes and then came a fascinating change of direction 
you became an independent operator on the Sydney Futures Exchange. To be on that floor during a flurry, Jamie, for want of a better word, must have been quite an experience. Yeah, a lot of fortunes were won and lost in a short space of time there. (laughs) A real insight into risk-taking. And again, like my experience in radio, it's it's been beneficial in what I do now, which is uh, syndication. But yeah, it was a, an exciting time. I wasn't a very good futures trader because I was happy to embrace risk to a point. Mm. I, I, I was. I, I didn't have an inherent. Foresight in markets, but in those days, trading on the floor with a flurry of other people, you had a bit of an advantage in a, in a physical sort of open outcry market. Mm-hmm. When it went electronic, and I think about nineteen ninety nine, yes, a lot of traders like myself uh, subsequently found it very difficult to make a living. So mm-hmm. we. Most of us moved on. A few remain that, that still do to this day, but yeah. only a minority. It's, yep. it's a different game now. On leaving the derivatives industry, you wandered back into radio for a while as a sports reporter with 2GB, which by then had been bought by John Singleton. You even tried your hand here as a rugby league commentator. Just quickly... How far did that go? I wasn't very good, John. It was always something I, <laughs> I wanted to do. So it was a bit of a bucket list, I guess. Mm. Uh, it was it was a bit like my rugby career. Uh, there were certain things I was really keen to do. I, I ended up playing one first-grade game in Sydney mm. years and years ago, and, and um I was pleased to get to that stage, but I, I, I was I was a very limited footballer in a, in a very um, uh, very limited in, um, in 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 football calling. Mm. But I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed it for the short time I did it. In the early two thousands, you finally embarked on a journey you'd been thinking about for a long time. The syndication of racehorses. Took a while to get your licence and it cost you a lot of money to set it all up. I think while you were waiting, you pulled beers in a pub at one stage. I did and I booked riders for Guy and I worked as a strapper for Guy and I did voiceovers and I did the odd sports shift. I was mm. I was uh, bringing up three children. I was trying to make a quid. But I was quite optimistic. About the future of syndication, John, I actually put a few friends together and we'd run a sort of, you know, quasi syndicate, if you like, uh, back in the eighties, and we'd we'd had a bit of bit of success, but it wasn't a commercial enterprise; it was more a hobby. This time, I wanted to make a career of it. And things were progressing in syndication whereby regulation was required and I had to get a, an Australian Financial Services dealer licence in, in order to participate. Mm. That was painful, long process. Finally got there. But there's no doubt I was really assisted by having a brother like Guy mm. with and reputation in the industry. It was extremely beneficial to be connected with him mm. and I'm sure that assisted me in, in, in the progress of proven thoroughbreds. As I mentioned earlier, that name, Proven Thoroughbreds, was created uh, by virtue of the fact that you started off buying tried horses only. One of your early success stories was a horse you sourced in Victoria. His name was Market Unit. You won five races with him all up, including, and this must have been a hell of a day out, the Goulburn Cup. Oh, my word it was, John. It was a thrilling day because it was the first horse, as you say, we syndicated 
flight horse from Victoria. I think we paid about twenty, thirty thousand for him, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the day he won the Goulburn Cup, a very young apprentice called Hugh Bowman was in the rode him beautifully, and it was one of those races where you as a caller would appreciate this, John. It's not often at the 200 you can say to yourself, we're home. But he strode a couple of lengths in front and he still had a lap full of horse. Thrilling day. And uh, to have a a bunch of my close friends involved in the horse uh, made it even more enjoyable. For some years now, you've raced horses out of a Queensland base. And that was Guy's doing. He recommended that you really should operate out of Brisbane for those horses that just weren't cutting it in Sydney. And he was right, of course. Your trainers there are the partnership of Steve O'Day and Matt Hoisted, and they do a super job for proven thoroughbreds. They certainly do, John. Uh, And you're right, Guy sort of said to me, look... With horses that are running fourth and fifth in Sydney, they could be winning in Brisbane in a, in a lower class. You, you've really got to find a Brisbane trainer. And Steve had actually purchased a horse of ours called Go-Kart, who'd been a handy performer by Dan Dancer. He won about four or five in Sydney. And Steve suddenly won three in a row with him in Brisbane. Mm. I thought, geez, who's this bloke? So I rang him up and jumped on a plane and went up and had lunch with him. Mm-hmm. Decided uh, he and I were on the same page. And he's been training for us ever since. Mm. 13 years ago. Yeah. And pretty early on, he got a horse called Sir Moments for us because initially we sent him horses from Guy um, for the precise reason I mentioned earlier. But then we started giving him yearlings and we gave him this big Choisir horse called Sir Moments, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, a pretty smart horse, one of Queensland guineas, multiple states now. And the day he won the Queensland guineas was the day after Guy's funeral. Yes, I remember. And it was a brilliant win. I don't think I've seen a race where given myself no chance until the last stride. Mm. It literally came from nowhere in a blanket finish through the field and just sprinted like a gazelle and got there right on the line. It was absolutely thrilling. Jamie, I'll get you to stand by there for a moment. Time to take uh, this commitment on the podcast and we'll be back with Jamie Walter after this. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed. You might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps race horses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. Special guest is the founder and managing director of Proven Thoroughbreds, Jamie Walter. I'm going to throw at you randomly the names of the nice horses who've carried Proven Thoroughbred colours over the years. Not in any particular order, Jamie. Just give me a quick assessment on a few of these. Lincium Academy won a lovely old race called the Rolly Mile at Hawkesbury. Lovely little horse. He was another purchase from Adelaide, I think 20000 by Galileo, mm. and a multiple city winner and, and 
and the interested winner in the rolling mile. Ran up to about 2,000 metres. We tried him over longer, but he was a, he was a little fuller and a, a little bit keen, so he, he didn't properly stay, but middle distance was, was ideal for him and we got a lot of joy out of him. Adora Beale was a nice mare who won six for you, three before guys passing and three after. Yes, now she was purchased for us by the late Steve Brem, a huge influence, I have to add, mm. John. Steve Brem was a New Zealander who'd run my Caddo stud as a, a racing manager for Gay Waterhouse, mm. ultimately became a, an independent blood stock agent. And I would have to say, next to Guy, the most influential person on my career. Mm. A very, very knowledgeable bloke. Yes, I remember meeting him two or three times. He was a delightful fella. And he had uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of particularly New Zealand families. And we asked him to find a, a horse for us in New Zealand and he purchased this Adorabile who won a group three aspirations for Joe after a guy's passing. And that was a very satisfying day because she'd been a slow developer, Savabile, and uh, not the easiest mare, a bit temperamental. And Joe did a tremendous job with her and and got her to peak as a – she was a six-year-old mare when she won that race. Candica mm. won five races on Brisbane tracks, ran third in a Magic Millions two-year-old classic, that was the year capitalist one. She was a smart mayor. Terrific mayor, John. Sam Deger, uh, by Sebring. And she was one that Steve and I selected at the Magic Millions. In fact, she was passed in and Steve urged me to go and pursue her and fortunately, fortunately uh, got her. It was a, not a particularly precocious-looking type, but... Uh, Steve said every time he put a saddle on her, she, she got better. Yeah. So he ended twice before Christmas and won them both before we put her into the Magic Millions and she ran third. And she was a really honest, uh, stage performer thereafter. Mm. The Princess Stakes, a mile race yep. in Queensland, which Steve's won about four times. Mm. What about uh, Got a Kiss? She was great for proven. Two wins at Eagle Farm, one at Doombin. Yeah, placed in a Group One, John. She was she was second in the uh, JJ Atkins uh, in, in the year it was shortened to fourteen hundred. She was a real natural from the get go. Got a kiss, lovely little, not a single doubt filly, and uh, very precocious. But like most horses that you don't miss as two year olds, uh, reach reach the sort of end of her career as a, as a late three-year-old. Mm. But uh, she gave uh, us yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Red Ruby has been a beauty. She's won six in Queensland. She's related to one of the Everest runners. Yeah, full sister to Shades of Rose, who mm. I've got to say is a bit of a blue hen, John, because yeah. we bought the first foal, lovely horse called Scalapini, by Snitzel, paid 200000 for him at the Magic Millions and he won a listed race uh, at Flemington, or was it a Group 3 listed, I think, mm-hmm. earlier this year. But he's won a, a, a number of stakes races and he's never gone better as an eight-year-old. No, he's a freak, isn't he? And he was the first fault. Red Ruby was the second and Shades of Rose is the third. Shades of Rose has already won a... Uh, a Chiraco Stakes, Group 2. Mm. Red Ruby's won half a dozen in Brisbane. And I think Red Ruby has uh, got a Stakes victory in her. Let's hope so. If she keeps improving the way her older brother did, yeah. then maybe we'll get there. And, and if she manages to do that, she'll be a, a very valuable mayor and 
particularly when you consider that the mother um, only other two five states for this. Caesar won a couple of nice races at Randwick, including a Roman consul. Uh, Tremec was a nine-time winner, including a Group 2, the chairman's handicap. And then there was Reckless Choice, Tamarack, Kai Lease, Brooke Magic. They all did a really nice job for proven thoroughbreds. And that brings us to Stroll, the dearest yearling you've ever purchased at $450,000. Did that keep you awake for a night or two? Well, it was a bit of a swing, John, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, we, we sort of took a view about four or five years ago. After I spoke to Steve Brem, dare I stay, because I said to Steve, look, I'm getting winners. The the business is progressing, but I'm not getting quality winners. What advice can you give me? And he said, Jamie, I had the same conversation with Denise Martin of Star Thoroughbreds five or six years ago. You've got to spend more money. (laughs) You buy better quality. Yeah. And you're choosing from a bigger pool of horses. So I copped that tip from Steve. And in the last, let's say, four or five years, we've spent a lot more money and numerically bought more horses mm. with more numbers and better bloodlines. Um, you'd be disappointed if you didn't get better results. Mm. And and Steve, God rest his soul, was right on the money yet again. Well, you bought this schnitzel filly, Stroll. Today she's won two from four, and one of them was a stakes race at Eagle Farm during the winter carnival with Willie Pike in the saddle. So you're away to a flyer. Is she back in work yet? She had trial the other day, John, mm-hmm. and will be aimed at summer riches, including the Magic Legends three-year-old guineas race at the Gold Coast in January. But she's got that valuable stakes win behind her now. And in fact, in that Bill Carter stakes victory over the winter, she beat a horse called Zoo Gotcha, mm-hmm. who's won the, the the Princess Series in Sydney over the spring, winning two of the three legs of that series and really developing as a pretty smart Group 1 winning filly. We're hoping Stroll can head down a similar path, but even though she's going a, a, a different way, we'll, we'll concentrate on the Magic Millions, having perhaps taken in a stakes race or two over the summer in Brisbane before the Magic Millions and thereafter, based on how she goes, decide on, on, on her subsequent uh, campaign. Guy Walter's sudden death in May of 2014 left the Australian racing industry stunned. <laughs> He was only 59. He'd reached the pinnacle of his profession with 34 Group 1 winners. And I remember the last was Streamer in the Doombin Cup. Jamie, you tell me Guy and his wife Wendy left a Kensington race meeting on a Wednesday and he was suffering chest discomfort as they got into the car. It was literally... Do I turn left and go home to Warwick Farm or do I turn right and go to the Prince of Wales Hospital? Mm. Sadly, John, uh, that was very true. And unfortunately for Guy, he chose going home to Warwick Farm and we lost him the next morning at breakfast. So... Yeah, but for the grace of God, we all go, I suppose, John. You know, if, if we all make, you know, decisions in our life. And that was a tragedy because I think if he'd gone to hospital, they would have identified a blockage in his artery, stint in, as so many people do today, and would still be with us. But uh, that was his fate, John, sadly. He was not a person who preoccupied himself with his own health, far more interested in the welfare of his horses. Mm. His legacy is massive, Jamie. His popularity and the esteem in which he was held by all sections of the industry 
is reflected in his posthumous Hall of Fame induction and the annual running of the Guy Walter at Randwick. Great trainer, great bloke, wonderful brother and one of the most heartfelt tributes I've ever read happened to be on a proven thoroughbred's letterhead and you wrote it after his Hall of Fame induction. Well, John, what can I say? I, I felt uh, absolutely gutted when we lost Guy. It was the biggest personal shock of my life. He'd been such an influence on me and, and we were so close as brothers. And writing that tribute was well, the very least I could do to um, try and sustain his legacy, which uh, still lives on to this day, as you say. He was highly respected. He was a dedicated horse trainer and a very kind man, Guy, and I think that's why he um, made so few enemies. He was he was loved by, by plenty and carved out a terrific reputation, which I referred earlier how fortunate I was to have him as my brother when I was trying to develop a business within the racing world. And and uh, there's no doubt Guy's reputation was, was a major factor in boosting proven thoroughbreds progress. You're the father of three boys, Tom, who's 31, Sam, who's 29, and Harry, who's 23. You tell me Tom plays a key role in the operation of proven thoroughbreds. Yeah, it's interesting, John. He didn't have the horsing background that I had because they were all brought up in Sydney and he, as a younger fellow, wasn't that interested in racing. He was he was interested in most sports and still is. He's a very keen um, spectator of sport. But his racing interest slowly developed. He started going to the races with his mates and having a few bets. And then when he got a degree in arts from university, he was wondering what he was going to do and ended up contacting RaceNet and offering to work for nothing, which was a bold thing to do and what I'd advised him to do. Um, And then got a job left RaceNet and has been working for Proven Thoroughbreds ever since and doing a great job. And it's very heartening having family involved in the business, John. Of course, yeah. No, not all family businesses Mm. are like plot work, but Tom and I get on very well and he's learning all the time about the intricacies of the racing world and this business and – dare I say, brings uh, a fresh contemporary set of IT skills to the business as well. Uh, That's very important today. We're recording this interview the day after the running of the Melbourne Cup, in which proven thoroughbreds had stockmen representing the outfit. You would have been, I imagine, more than pleased with his effort to finish officially eighth, just over seven lengths from the winner, and very little went right in the run. Very proud of the horse, John. Like most major Group 1 contests, you need a lot of luck if, you, if you're going to get the cash. There are very few horses like Winks that can just keep winning Group 1 races regardless of the the uh, hand of fortune that's given to them. And sadly for Stockman, uh, he's he's one of those horses that does need a few favours and he didn't get them. Yesterday he was strung up behind a slow horse in a race that was steadily run, not 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 run quickly, which would break, would have broken up the field and he ended up being surrounded by other horses at a vital stage of the race. 
that's that's the way it goes. Uh, he just didn't didn't get out and, and and build him through his gears. He's not a was not a sort of sit and sprint horse. He really needs to to, to, to gradually build into a race, and and uh, it just wasn't to be. But look, he's a lovely, honest horse, and I think there are more victories in store. Well, Jamie, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I hope Guy can find a way to master the technology at the pearly gates so we can have a listen to the podcast and hear the nice things you've said about him. Oh, so do I, John. I, I think he will be up there somewhere. And I have no doubt about the, the reach of your podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Jamie, you've been an entertaining and a very informative guest. It's been lovely to take a trip down memory lane and hear about all of the things you've crammed into your 65 years and few have been busier. Uh, this is a podcast produced by Supernova Sound and it was a delight to have you on board, Jamie Walter. Absolute pleasure, John. And as I said from the outset, um, a, a real privilege uh, to talk to you because uh, you've been such a significant part of my life whilst completely unaware of it because I've listened to your calls um, so many times I would like to have been paid for them. <laughs> well, let's have lunch. We'll see what we can work out. Good on you, John. Good on you, Jamie. Thanks very much for your time. The Spring Carnival Action heads north to Newcastle on Saturday, November the 12th for The Hunter, the $1 million feature for three-year-olds and upwards over 1,300 metres, and it's hard to believe it's the fourth edition of The Hunter. The first two were won by Mayors. Savatiano won the inaugural running for Godolphin with James McDonald up, relegating the Chris Lee's trained tactical advantage into second place. In 2020, it was Sweet Deal, trained by John Thompson and written by Nash Rawilla. Again, Chris Lee's trained the runner-up special reward. Last year, Lost and Running dominated the race at short odds for John O'Shea and Hugh Bowman, and you guessed it, the runner-up Wonder Bar was trained by Chris Lees. Supporting the Hunter will be the Beaufort, the Group 3 Spring Stakes and the Max Lees Classic for the two-year-olds, while the regular highway and midway races have also been programmed. November 12th at the beautiful Broadmeadow track at Newcastle for the running of the Hunter.